Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. This is the word of the Lord. So John chapter 14 begins a section in John's gospel where Jesus is preparing his disciples for his departure from the world. It reminds me of a couple of experiences I've had as a father. When my kids were younger than they are now, Marianne and I a couple of times have gone on trips for, say, two or three days away. And my mom and Marianne's mom will come and watch our three children and they'll split the time they have, you know, 36 hours apiece. That's about the most anybody's comfortable with them, our kids and us. And, um, and in preparation for Marianne and I to be gone for three days, uh, we will, well, not we, Marianne, write some instructions for our moms. And those instructions can sometimes reach two or three single-spaced pages. And, uh, you know, you don't think about it when you're sort of in the grit of parenting how much there is to know. And we wanted to make sure that our moms knew what they were doing, that our children had confidence that our moms knew what they were doing, and that we wouldn't have to worry when we left. It was preparing our moms and our children and even our own hearts for our absence, our absence from our kids for a few days. And it was a a stress reducer for everyone involved. If you're a parent of young children, you've probably had a similar experience before. That's what Jesus is doing in these chapters. He's preparing his disciples, his friends for his absence. This is beginning what's known in John's gospel as Jesus's farewell discourse. That's chapters 14, 15, and 16 of John. Now, I mentioned last week that John chapter 13 all the way through chapter 19 really encompasses one 24-hour day in the life of Jesus and the life of the people around him. John really spends the entire second half of his gospel telling us about the final few hours of Jesus's earthly life. And this farewell discourse is sort of a, it's sort of a crash course in discipleship. While Jesus is with his disciples in the upper room, right before Judas betrays him, right before he goes into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, right before he's arrested and put on trial, Jesus spends time pouring himself into his closest friends that he had while he was on the earth. And John, who was one of those 12 men, is giving us eyewitness testimony, a personal recollection under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of what Jesus instructed them about and what he said to them. And that's what we see here in John chapter 14. None of the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, or Luke, have anything about this. This is unique to John. And there's some of, in my opinion, the best chapters in all of the Bible because they reveal the real heart of our God. And so we're going to look at verses one through seven of chapter 14 today. And here's how I want to summarize it. Here's the main idea. Jesus is saying, trust in me, trust in Jesus, because he alone offers the way to heaven. That's the point. Trust in Jesus because he alone offers the way to heaven. 
We can break this up into three sections. First, Jesus gives a command in verse 1, and then he gives two reasons why we should follow his command. So let's look at that then together for a few minutes this morning. Jesus gives us, in verse 1, a command. Really, he tells us two things, and look at what he says first. Let not your hearts be troubled. That's Jesus's opening volley, his opening salvo in these verses. Jesus is not giving advice here. Jesus is giving marching orders for his people. He's giving them a command. He's saying, don't worry. Don't be anxious. Don't be afraid. That's what he leads this farewell discourse with. Which brings up the question, why would his disciples be worried? Why would they be troubled? Well, they're troubled in part because of what Jesus is about to tell them, that he's about to leave them, that he's going somewhere that they can't go. They're not going to understand what he means. Thomas is going to tell us that here in just a minute. So they're worried about what Jesus is about to say. And they're also troubled by what Jesus has just said. If you read the prior verse, the very last verse of chapter 13, you'll see that there Jesus tells Peter, hey, Peter, you're not nearly nearly as spiritually tough as you think. In fact, before the rooster crows three times, you're going to deny that you ever had anything to do with me. And a few verses before that, Jesus had said, one of you 12 is going to betray me. The one who dips his hand in with my hands. So just in the last few minutes, Jesus's best friends on earth have heard that one of their number is going to betray him. One of their number is going to abandon him. And guess what? They feel the same way any of us would feel if we were in that situation. They're confused. They're worried. They're troubled. They don't know what he's talking about. But Jesus says, don't be too troubled. Don't be disheartened. He's saying, I know that there are hard things you're going to face. I know that what I've just said means that you can't even really trust yourselves. But you can trust me. You know, I think this is such a great thing to hear from Jesus. I hope that you can hear it, really hear it today. Jesus is saying, listen, I know you're not trustworthy. I know that you are fickle, that you are weak and wandering. I know that your heart is prone to deception and evil, but I love you still. And I'm going to love you forever. And it's my love that's going to pull you out of your sin, out of your guilt, out of your fear. I find, that, I find that such an amazing thing about Jesus, and I hope you do too. Think about it. Of all the people in that room that night who should have been troubled, Jesus tops the list. <laughs> I mean, Jesus is the only one in that room who knows what's about to happen to him. He's the only one who knows that he's about to die. He's about to be suffering the shame and the scorn of the cross. Jesus is about to be separated for the first time in eternity from his father, He's about to bear the full force of human sin and corruption himself. He's the one who in just a few hours is going to be sealed in a tomb as a dead corpse. Jesus should be troubled. But Jesus shows us here his undying selflessness towards his people. Towards his disciples then and towards you and me now if we're his people. He's living out what he said in chapter 13 verse 1. That he will love his people to the end Perfectly. So Jesus says, don't be troubled. And then the second command he gives in that verse is seen in the very next phrases. He says, believe in God, believe also in me. 
Now, think about this with me. Jesus here immediately ties together his command to encouragement, encouragement not to be troubled, with his encouragement to trust him. In other words, Jesus is saying the way to keep your heart from being troubled in the face of doubt and fear and sorrow is to trust me. To trust me and to trust my Father. You see, for Jesus... Faith or trust is an eminently practical thing. Jesus is saying that when you place your life in his hands, that is what is going to strengthen you and enable you to fight away the troubles that you're going to face in life. Believing in him enables you not to be troubled because believing in Jesus involves you placing your life in the hands of someone who is absolutely confident in his own power, who's absolutely confident in his own ability. I mean, I'm a pastor, and so I have the opportunity from time to time to counsel people, to give people advice or instruction, to tell them what I think they should do. And I have the privilege by trying to seek the Lord's wisdom and do that from time to time. But I would never say to anyone in a counseling situation, hey, listen, here's what you really need to do. You need to believe in me. You need to trust me above all else, right now. I mean, that would be supremely stupid for me and for you, by the way, to obey obey that instruction. And it would be supremely arrogant. But Jesus has no problem with saying something like that. He says, hey, the main thing you need to do to not be troubled is believe in me and believe in God. And notice he, he he makes equivalent himself and God. Believe in me, believe in God, as if they're the exact same thing. We see again here evidence that Jesus isn't just a good example or philosopher or teacher. Good philosophers and teachers don't say that sort of thing. Jesus is supremely confident, rather, in his own divine godness, in his own power. Think about it with me. What is it that's troubling you right now? The word of God is speaking to you this morning, and it's asking you that question. How are you hurting What is confusing you and overwhelming you? Jesus here reminds us to remember that when our hearts are troubled, he is with us. Jesus knows our hurts. Jesus has words of comfort for us right here, right now. Jesus is our true friend. Jesus will guide us into the truth. And so he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Trust me. He was with his disciples to the end then, and he will be with you to the end now. So his command, don't be too troubled, believe in me. And then he gives us two reasons why we should do that. Why we should believe and why we should not be too troubled. We see the first reason in verses 2 and 3. And the first reason is that Jesus is going to prepare a place for us. As Jesus will tell his disciples later in these chapters, it's actually to our advantage that he goes away. And the reason he gives for that here is that he's going to prepare a place for his people and then he is going to come back and get them and take them there. I mean, look at the words. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that you may be where I am also. So the room and the house, that language is a reference, I think, clearly to heaven to the new world that one day God will usher in in the second coming of Jesus. 
to the time when all of us who trust Christ will faithfully and fully live as sons and daughters forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. So given that Jesus is referring to heaven here, I want you to follow with me real quickly the logic of what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, listen, if I was willing to come the first time and humiliate myself in my life, if I was willing to offer myself up in death as a sacrifice and an atonement for your sin, if I was willing to be buried in the ground, if I was willing to undergo the torment and pain of your guilt and corruption's merits, then for sure I'm not going to abandon you and refuse to finish the job. Jesus is saying, if I came once and did what the Father called me to do to bring you and to bring me salvation, then you can be guaranteed and assured that I will come again to take you home to dwell with me. Jesus isn't going to leave us. He's not going to abandon us. He's not going to die and be raised from the dead and ascend into heaven and then fail to come back and bring us to heaven with him. So the work of Jesus we see is designed to bring us back home to the father. The work of Jesus is designed to take you to heaven, to a place of perfect glory and painlessness and freedom and joy. Did you notice in the story, in the words Jesus uses, what is it that makes heaven heaven? I mean, I want you to see what he focuses on. It's not the big house with the many rooms that makes heaven heaven. And it's not even all of the people that we will be reunited with that makes heaven heaven, glorious as those things will be. What makes heaven heaven is that, verse 4, where Jesus is, we may be also. What we call heaven, Jesus simply calls where I am. That's heaven's simplest and most adequate definition. Heaven is a place where we experience fully the real presence of Jesus himself. Growing up, my mom always used to say, the people make the place. That's probably because we grew up in the panhandle. And often we're like, why are we living here? You know, uh, the people make the place, my mom would say. The, 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 the extent to which you love where you live depends largely on the people that you live with. And that's also true of heaven. Heaven is heaven because heaven is where Jesus dwells. John, in another of his books in Revelation, puts it more vividly. Let me read for you from Revelation 21. Here's what he writes there about heaven. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Jesus is saying, don't be too troubled. Believe in me because this is the reality that awaits those of you who've connected with me by faith. So can you be encouraged by that this morning? That one day we will all be with the source and giver of all joy and hope and happiness and life. That's what Jesus is preparing for us. That's the goal of our salvation. And so he says, trust me, don't be afraid. Don't be troubled. Reason two, the second reason that we can trust Jesus when he tells us not to be troubled is because Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way to heaven. And Jesus gives us this reason as a response to the question from Thomas. Look there in verse 5 or verse 4. Jesus says, you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas says, actually, God, nope, sure don't. We don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? 
And Jesus has just said, yeah, you know the way. And Thomas is like, no, I'm afraid I don't know the way, Jesus. You're expecting far too much of me at this point. And what Thomas wants is, what Thomas wants is a spiritual roadmap. Thomas wants directions for how to get back to God. Now, most religions provide supposed answers to this question of Thomas. They have answers to what the way is. The way is to obey the law. The way is to make a pilgrimage to a holy place. The way is to achieve enlightenment, some say. But Jesus here tells Thomas and tells us something radically unique to the Christian faith. And of all the things about Christianity, this might be the most important thing for you to understand. Christianity is not about a system or a rule or a guideline. Christianity, in its essence, is about a person. Knowing the person of Jesus is the crux of the matter. It's not a law. It's not a mystery. It's the man, Jesus himself, having a personal relationship with him that gives you access to the way to heaven. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I am the entry point to life with God the Father. I am the entry point to blessing. I'm the entry point to forgiveness. Jesus is the way. And we only access the way through him. He tells us in those second two words, the truth and the life, how he can be the way. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am the way because I am the truth. That is, Jesus is the way because he demonstrates for us in his life and in his words what the real God is like. We've seen that again and again in John. Jesus came to make the real God known. John chapter 1 tells us that. We read in verse 18, No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. So Jesus is the way because Jesus represents God truly. Jesus is God truly. And Jesus is also the way because he is the life. That is, Jesus embodies the source and the continuation of all life. We see that in John 1 as well. Verse 4, in him, that is Jesus, was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus paves the path to eternal life in his own person and work. In him alone can anyone have abundant life and eternal life. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. And we've got to take a second to think about also the second part of that verse. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. Now, you can read that very clearly here as saying, no one experiences life. No one goes to heaven when they die. No one gets saved. No one can know the real God. No one can be forgiven of sin and guilt except through me. Jesus here clearly and unquestionably saw himself as the exclusive, only, solo way to God. Listen to the medieval, medieval theologian Thomas Akempis. Here's what he wrote. I am the way, he's talking about Jesus. This is what Jesus says. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Without the way, there is no going. Without the truth, there is no knowing. Without the life, there is no living. I am the way that you should follow, the truth that you should believe, the life that you should hope for. I am the inviolable way, the infallible truth, the indestructible life. I am the straightest way, the sovereign truth, the authentic life, blessed and eternal. 
To put it bluntly, Jesus says that there is no way to heaven and there is no way to life other than through faith in him. Now, this teaching has unquestionably fallen out of favor in our culture. It might not have ever been in favor, but it's certainly not in favor now. To claim this kind of what we'll call exclusivity is seen as the pinnacle of religious arrogance and intolerance. Much more popular is the belief that there are actually many ways. There are many ways to heaven. The key factor isn't which way you choose. The key factor, rather, some say, is that you practice your way with authenticity and with passion. And if you do so, you will be rewarded. Many roads lead to the same destination. I want, I want to push back on that idea a little bit here this morning. And I want you to hear Jesus' words and let Jesus push back on that idea this morning as well. And let me just quickly push back on that in two ways. One, by an argument, and two, by a story. The story's going to be more persuasive, probably. But first, by argument. I want you to think about that with me. Use your minds that God has given you. And I want you to understand that to, to say that there are many ways is virtually to conflate and flatten every religion to say that they're all basically the same thing. They all basically get you to the same place. It just matters that you practice them with purity in your heart. To to say that is not actually just unfair to Christianity, although it is. It's unfair to every other religion as well. It's, It's at the very best intellectually dishonest to say that there are many ways and in the end they're all really teaching the same thing. That doesn't do justice to Christianity. That doesn't do justice to any religion. And the reason for that is because various alleged ways, various religions are in many places diametrically opposed to one another in what they teach and in what they practice. And not just on minor issues. We're not talking about the difference between a Presbyterian and an Anglican. We're talking about differences on the question of who is God? What is wrong with the world? And how is this world going to be made right again? I want to urge you to consider that it's much more intellectually honest and thoughtful to study each of the proposed ways and allow honest dialogue and discussion about which is the right way. Let a thousand faiths and religions, secular and religious, speak their convictions in the public square and let each one attempt to convert and let us respectfully listen to what each has to say and let us see who prevails. You know what? The truth can handle itself. So it's unfair. It's dishonest and it's intellectually lazy. Not just to Christianity, but to any major religion or any major way that says it's the way to say, well, they're all basically the same. They're not all basically the same. And what I think we in this church want to urge you to consider, if you're not convinced that Jesus is the way, is to study it, to think about it, to have dialogue about it. We would love to be a part of that journey with you. So that's the first piece of reflection. Secondly, a story from the silver chair, book six. Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis. And I think that this story can help clarify the sense of our passage, as does the best theological explanation. And uh, in the story, there's a girl named Jill. And this is very early in the book. Jill enters into a strange and magical country. And this country is on top of a very high mountain. And Jill wanders for what seems like forever in search of some water to drink because she is 
parched and dying of thirst. And after wandering for some time, Jill encounters a lion. And the lion just happens to be lying between where Jill stands and a stream of beautiful running water. And uh, Jill is terrified of the lion, but she's also terribly thirsty. And the lion asks her if she's thirsty. And Jill replies, I'm dying of thirst. Then drink, the lion tells her. But Jill's too afraid to venture near the lion, and she asks if he wouldn't mind leaving while she drinks. But before he even answers, Lewis says, she quickly realizes the presumption of the request. She might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. So Jill asks the lion if he will promise not to do anything to her if she comes and drinks. But the lion responds, he makes no such promise. Now she has to have a drink or she's going to die of thirst. So she comes a step nearer to the water and asks the lion, do you ever eat girls? The lion responds very matter-of-factly. I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. When Jill tells the lion that she does not dare to come and drink, the lion replies that she will die of thirst then. Jill comes another step nearer and says, I suppose I must go look for some other stream then. But the lion replies, there is no other stream. What's that story mean? It means that you must face an encounter with the true Jesus if you want to drink of the life that he offers. That requires courage. It requires a willingness to lay aside what were once dearly held convictions of yours. But it's the only way. Jesus is very clear on that. And we must be very clear on that as well if we're going to follow his way and love his mercy towards us. There's one stream of water that provides life. There's one way. His name is Jesus. And the good news is that he offers himself to you, each of you, today. He asks you to believe. So will you trust him? Can you see him for who he is? Can you rest in Jesus? Only then will your hearts not be troubled. Let's pray.